The following program contains views, ideas, and opinions that have been produced by the host DJ and their guests and are not reflective of the views of WRFL or its underwriters. For questions, comments, or concerns, please email programming at wrfl.fm. Who listens to the radio anymore? We do. WRFL Lexington. Hello, I'm Noel Oldham, and you're listening to Campus Voices on WRFL Lexington. Health disparities are social problems that cause certain communities to face more barriers to good health, leading to higher health risks. Health disparities are present here in our Lexington community. Today, I'm joined with Dr. Dukia Talbert, Assistant Hospital Director at the University of Kentucky Hospital and Vice Chair for the Health Disparities Subcommittee and a professor within UK's College of Nursing. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Talbert. Thank you, my honor. So you're serving on the Health Disparities Subcommittee of Marilinda Gorton's Commission for Racial Injustice and Inequality. How are you approached to be on that committee? Well, it, it's interesting. I have done some work in the community with some of the faith leaders, along with Mayor Gordon and members at the Lexington Fayette County Health Department. So that is how I came to know Mayor Gordon. And so we then connected at that level. And so I was one of her um, candidates, I guess, if you will, to co-chair the subcommittee for health disparities, along with Dr. Williams. Can you tell us a bit about that subcommittee for health disparities? What, what issues are you looking at and, and how are you going to address them? Okay, so the subcommittee is composed of approximately 14 individuals. And, and amongst those individuals, we also have individuals from the community as well as a community voice, right? Because some of our work or most of our work has been uh, centered around looking at the lived experience and the social determinants of health that people experience on a daily basis and their impact on their ability to access health care and a healthy lifestyle, really. So um, we have several individuals that are represented, for instance, by different facilities, healthcare facilities here in Lexington, UK Healthcare being one with myself, um, of course, the College of Nursing, nurses, as well as physicians, as well as individuals involved with United Way, uh, God's Pantry, the Health Department, as well as the Kentucky Health Department and Health Equity Division. And so we have a lot of different lenses and individuals who are part of this process to add valuable, valuable feedback about people's lived experiences. So what work is the committee doing to address health disparities in Lexington? So a lot of our work, Nora, has centered around, like I said, feedback, but also looking at qualitative data. Um, because we've had some challenges with getting quantitative data, but we've gotten a lot of different assessments that have been used in historically by the mayor and other people in the mayor's position. I mean, because, you know, Mayor Gordon has probably had about a year or so term, and so her, her history is not as long. But one of the guiding um, documents, and I mean, there have been others, but we've used the community health assessment. And this is an assessment that looks at really a lot of qualitative data that is collected um, throughout the community of Lexington, which has really helped to be really a foundational document, if you will, 
for us to look at what has been done, what were some of the challenges, as well as some of the planning around those things that have been identified in the community, like the Community Health um, Improvement Plan, which is called CHIP, and also the Community Health Assessment, which is something that is done every five years, though. That's the only challenge with that. Uh, it's an assessment done every five years. And what they did the last time it was conducted, Noah, is they did do an oversampling of the African-American community because we wanted to make sure, they wanted to make sure, I wasn't part of that process, that we had a good sample size to represent African-Americans and communities of color so that we would have good data uh, telling us about the challenges people have in terms of healthcare and healthcare access. So what information, you said it's qualitative, what information is that assessment looking at? Well, they looked at a lot of different things and um, some of the things that they looked at, for instance, just to kind of frame this work for you, because I think it's important to understand, one of the frameworks that we use just for our overall work is something that we call like a framework for health equity, right? So when you're looking at that, you're looking at social factors and you're looking at upstream um, factors that, that interfere with people's ability to access healthcare and, and other things in the community. So when you look at that framework, the things that kind of were looked at with this assessment included, um, obviously, race, class. Um, they looked at, you know, corporations, businesses, government, schools. It was just really a very comprehensive look at where people live, eat, pray, sleep, and work, and looking at all those different determinants of health, uh, economic stability, the neighborhood and the physical environment, educational level of individuals within the community, access to healthy food options like fresh foods, et cetera, uh, where we have food deserts and food insecurities in the, the neighborhoods, um, the social context around how these individuals are socially integrated into their, their workspace, their, their living space, uh, community engagement, how much we, or those individuals, should I say, have been allowed to have a voice within their community. And this assessment tool was really geared at looking at where they, they do all these things and perform all these functions and giving them also the opportunity to have some feedback about the challenges. And especially as, re, as it relates to healthcare as well and health coverage and insurance. Insurance is key because that's your means and people's means by which to pay for healthcare. When we look at Lexington right now, how ingrained are health disparities within our communities? How ingrained? So I, I would say very ingrained. And, 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 and I would say too, Noah, one of our challenges when looking at Lexington, and, and this is actually going to be one of our recommendations to the mayor, is that I believe we need to do a more drilled down approach to data analyses, because we know that, well, what we would hope is that the way to change policies in Lexington and any other place in the United States uh, is that you have quantifiable data, not just your qualitative data, but some quantifiable data that really drills down and looks at um, certain parameters such as uh, we want to have information, for instance, on race and ethnicity and what impacts it 
healthcare disparities have on people of different races, ethnicities, and, and really if you wanted to push that further, gender differences, sexual identity and orientation, disability status, and geographic locations. We believe that zip code is tremendously important when we start trying to quantify how ingrained health disparities are in Lexington. Because a lot of the data that we often have, uh, that data looks at composites or overall scores of people, but it doesn't look at the variation of those impacts amongst people based on their race, ethnicity, and all those things that I just mentioned to you. So if you look at things such as like Healthy People 2020, and you look at things, you know, literature, the literature in general, um, I believe it would be safe to say, Noah, that a lot of the challenges as far as with healthcare access, preventative services, environmental quality, violence, maternal and infant and child health, mental health, um, nutrition, physical activity, oral health, I mean, there's a lot of things that we found that it's no different here in the city of Lexington. We just need to be able to qualify that better. And we have pockets of excellence as to how we qualify it. Yeah, how is that going to be actually counted and, and, and researched? Well, again, those are recommendations that we want to put forward to the mayor. And, and I believe that, you know, Noah, there are tools out there. I'm, I'm not really probably the, the, the most well-versed on that, but working, I think, through the Kentucky Health Department and the um, other things that we have in the community, uh, for instance, like um, the Center for Health Equity, he, even here on campus, Chet, uh, that we have some really fabulous colleagues that could probably help us with gathering data and also help the mayor. And so what we want to recommend is, is, is some of those people who do it and do it well, that we use those avenues as means to gather quantifiable data and that is disaggregated by race and ethnicity as well as gender, as well as sexual identity and expression. But I think top of that list has to be at the very minimal race and ethnicity. And there are different tools. And, and, and again, I'm sorry, I'm not as well versed on what all those need to be, but there are definitely tools out there that we need to pull in some of the experts that manage data and look at data sets and large data sets to advise us on that and to advise the mayor. When looking at health disparities, social factors play a very clear role. Social determinants of health encompass a wide array of daily societal factors. Reporter Alex Brinkhurst talked with Dr. Lavoria B. Williams, vice chair on the subcommittee with Dr. Talbert, and an associate professor in the College of Nursing, whose research focuses on reducing health disparities among communities. When it comes to facing health disparities, you have to look deeper than just physical risk factors. Factors such as educational levels, poverty, and ease of access to places such as grocery stores and medical centers. Dr. Lavrona B. Williams, who is the vice chair on the Health Disparities Subcommittee, explained what they did day one to address the issues. So the very first meeting, what we did is we just listened and we had the subcommittee members just name some of the main barriers to health inequity, to health equity. And they said things like, um, transportation, they talked about food, 
they talked a lot about trust and mistrust of the healthcare system. Dr. Williams further explained what one of the main causes of these disparities are and why it plagues minority communities. Health disparities are a direct result of systemic racism. So just policies and barriers that are have been put in place historically that prevents everyone from having equitable health. Williams explained with some examples, such as with grocery stores. While having to provide fruits and vegetables in order to take SNAP, a food assistance program for low-income people, Williams explained that these fruits and vegetables are not typically fresh nor expansive in corner stores. However, one other issue which Dr. Williams described as, quote, low-hanging fruit was over the issue of exercise and sidewalks. Parts of Lexington, there's... There are sidewalks, there's green space, but other parts of Lexington, there isn't as much. So one thing that we can implement quickly is a policy implementation, that if there's a new development, um, that sidewalks and a park or green space is a part of that development. Reporting for WRFL News. I'm Alex Springhorst. Dr. Talbert, what are other things similar to sidewalks that can be scarce for certain communities to access? Well, and, and I think that that's important to say. So you have sidewalks. And when we talk about the fact that uh, when you think about redlining, you know, we hear a lot about that, right? You hear about it all the time uh, in the media. It's really looking at when you when all this boils down to, and when we were all talking about it, we're talking about power, we're talking about privilege, we're talking about access. And when you look at redlining, oftentimes there are certain zip codes or areas within a city, especially based on the individual's means, economic status within those those uh, certain zip codes that that pay taxes right your taxes and all of that kind of determines where federal funds and state funds flow so when you think about that and when you think about new communities really we should have policies that say any new community that's built has to be within a certain radius of a market of a Kroger's, of a grocery store, so that people have access that is within a reasonable means to get to that place for food. And then, of course, the sidewalks and the screens, the green space and park areas for children to be able to be out safely and, and, and be able to exercise and get outside the house. And, and so then when you think about that, you also think about what else is in the neighborhood as far as air quality, right? So we talk about green space, we talk about sidewalks, but what about the air quality and the water quality? I mean, there are just so many environmental factors that can be impacted by the amount of resources or services that are provided to a certain community. Um, its proximity to factors uh, or factories, I'm sorry, and exhaust and different byproducts of whatever they're near. So uh, I think that those are other things that could be added or reviewed or looked at when people are building new communities. So in Lexington, 28% of confirmed cases have been patients who identify as Hispanic, according to the health department. Mm -hmm. However, the Hispanic community only makes up roughly 7% of our city's population. And the Black community within Lexington has also been disproportionately affected as well. But what sort of disparities in healthcare are causing this virus to disproportionately affect those communities? 
Well, I, I think that, that it, it's not always what is within healthcare. I think it's also those things and those, those social determinants of health that we've already talked about. So when you think about that, you think about people's lived experiences, um, let's, let's just say even, you know, look at either of those black and brown people, communities of color. So that would include our Hispanic brothers and sisters as well as, you know, African-Americans. When you look at language as a barrier, you know, sometimes not knowing where resources are, um, knowing where testing sites are, um, navigation and access and, and knowledge of policies and resources are barriers to healthcare. So I think that those are factors when we're looking, especially when we talk about Hispanic, if English, if English, it may or may not be, be a problem and it may not be their primary language. So I think that's a major barrier and issue. And so some of these individuals, one may not, well, they're getting tested, some of them, because we're getting test results, but they may not then be going or seeking healthcare because they may be uninsured. Insurance is a big ticket item, right? How do you pay for it? And, and so do they have primary care physicians? These individuals may or may not have primary care physicians because not everybody necessarily who's positive for COVID requires hospitalization, um, but certainly there should be some monitoring and access to resources to help maintain their health and not spread it. So the other piece of that is where do these people live? And one of the things that we've noted too amongst African-American communities and perhaps some Hispanic is that you have multi-generational homes, right? So therefore, if you have a positive person and you don't have the ability within your home footprint to physical distance and wear masks or provide masks for everybody else, you know, that becomes an issue too because it helps with the spread of COVID. And so you have more people that are being disproportionately impacted because of living situations, access to healthcare, access to testing and testing sites, because there also there's that thing, if you don't know that you're positive and then you're going around folks and then spreading the virus or and or you do, and you don't have a means to separate yourself from those individuals. So I think it's multifaceted. Um, and that's what we're seeing here with COVID. It's kind of illuminating issues we've had all along in healthcare and with structural racism. Um, and, and I would be remiss, Noah, also to mention that there's a long-lived history, too, of just trust breaches, especially among African Americans. And when you look at their experience in healthcare, um, a lot of individuals, because of things like the Tuskegee experiment and other things like that. There, there are lived experiences that people um, in their families have experienced, but these stories have gone down through generations. So people have trust issues with seeking out health care and, and also being tested. Mm -hmm. Do you think there are things that can be done to help rebuild trust between those communities and healthcare professionals? Yes, I, I, I do believe that there are things that can be done. And, and I think that it, it, it stems around some of the stuff that I talked about before in terms of the power, the privilege, and the access. And I believe that we have to step back and say, how do we empower people? Because 
people don't always just want someone to swoop in and save the day. They want to be part of the solution and part of the sustainable solution. Because sometimes I think it's easy when you're not living on the east side of town or the west side of town or some of these area codes of town and the zip, you know, the zip codes actually that are at more risk or have higher risk individuals living in them, that it's easy for me to come up with a plan but not consult with the people who are living in the space. So I think that part of this is representation on community advisory boards. I think we need to have many more of those so that people not only are, are present, but they have a voice that they, are, that they can use and be listened to um, for um, developing solutions, but then also means and resources. I mean, why not have policies that drive um, building codes when you're building a new, um, whatever it may be, housing complex, apartment, whether it's multi-dwelling or single-dwelling places, that there should be rules and regulations that everybody gets green space, parks, and sidewalks. Why not? And that everybody is within a certain radius of a grocery store. Why not? Um, but also economic security. I mean, food insecurity in deserts. I think these are things that could be wins for the city, but I think that it's going to behoove us to get better data so that we have targeted solutions for people who really need it as opposed to global strokes of the paintbrush, right? You can't just say, I am going to do this, and when I do this, it's going to help everybody. I mean, it's just like, for instance, with the testing. We've had several testing sites, and strategically, they've been placed in areas that are um, densely populated with African-Americans, Hispanics, but nobody's really looking and taking a head count, if you will, of who's coming through to get testing in those spaces. So we're making some assumptions that if we build them, they will come about the mix of uh, African-Americans, Hispanics, et cetera, that come to these various and sundry testing sites. Now, I think by and large, they've been very positive. They've been fruitful. We've gotten people, but nobody's really taking um, data on who's coming through these drive-throughs. So I think that we really have to start listening to the people and, and focus on improving the quality of in interactions between people and providers even, because you know there is this adage of um, physician and patient concordance, and the fact that, um, let's just say, an African-American person responds better to an African-American provider. Um, I think it would behoove us to look at when we can make those connect points and we have areas that we can make create that concordance, but we know that the pipeline, we're gonna to have to work on that too, because we don't, we have a very small number here in the city and the state. But my thing is, regardless of what race or ethnicity you are, we all need to focus more on cultural competence so that we can, anybody can provide culturally sensitive care to any patient. Because you can't be excused because I'm black and you're white or vice versa, and, and, and I'm not gonna be held accountable to be sensitive to the culture of my patient and understanding them better. When addressing health disparities, one solution is the community health worker. WRFL reporter Alex Brinkhurst discussed with Dr. Williams about what community health workers 
do in their communities. Community health workers are a direct response to dealing with health disparities. Examples such as Kentucky Home Place, which served over 15,000 rural residents from 2001 to 2019. Dr. Williams also explained what makes them so unique. The beauty of community health workers is that they are people who live in those communities. So they've experienced all of the barriers that we're trying to dismantle. And they, they know what it takes to get to the doctor's office and, and how big of a challenge just that simple act of keeping the medical appointment can be. Dr. Williams further explained how these individuals can aid a community directly, given that they live within them. A lot of times the community health workers are already interested in being a part of the solutions for their communities. Um, so they're already vested in doing something. And they know that there are resources from within that community that they can build on. So that's what makes them just such a strength in helping improve the health of their communities. For WRFL News, I'm Alex Brinkhorst. Dr. Talbert, what can community health workers do to help eliminate disparities, health disparities between communities? Well, I think some of the things that we learned and when we looked at the community health assessments is that we looked at um, the fact, you know, just to kind of reiterate some of those barriers, because I think this will help explain and bridge why the community health worker is so vital. Um, first of all, we had identified compassion and equity with treatment, you know, somebody who's understanding, right, that's delivering my care, that also builds that relational and trustworthy um, relationship between the provider and the patient, but also, um, we determined that there were, people didn't always know where the resources were, where they were or what they were. And I think that these community health workers are very essential because as Dr. Williams has pointed out, they are people engaged and, and a part of the community and they are trusted. And so they're an insider, so to speak. So it's people who understand the community, who also are aware of where the resources are and where to navigate people in the community to those resources because there are things that are present for people to access but they just don't know that they exist or they don't know how to access them so i think that's really critical because that's where you can leverage things that are already in place and it's really not creating something new it's just making sure people know where they are and how to reach them to help with having a more healthy state or even when that comes to insurance and, and different payment sources out there and signing up and getting enrolled into Medicare, Medicaid, sometimes it's just a matter of helping someone through the process. And these community health workers are very insightful and knowledgeable and are trained on how to do a lot of these things. Are there community health workers already in place in some of the marginalized communities in Lexington? There are, and I think that what we need to do is leverage those individuals, but also see where they are, because that's been part of our work as well, that we've not completed. It's still a work in progress. And one of the areas, for instance, that we know one does exist, and only because this is, is an area I'm familiar with, is 
the Polk Dalton Clinic we have on the east end of town. We have a community health worker in that setting, very effective, very knowledgeable, and very influential in that, that sector of our, our Lexington, right? So when we have models that work, Noah, I think it's so very important that we extrapolate those to other parts of the community. But I think that it goes back to the data and the zip codes and knowing where to target our efforts. You can't do you know, this broad brush of, of just saying, this is gonna work because it works here. But I do think that we can extrapolate those into the communities where we know that there are higher risk populations. And for instance, with readmissions to the hospital or with access or with morbidity, I mean, we can get morbidity and mortality rates by zip code. We just need to tap into the right resources to get those and have that information available to the mayor and her advisory committee so that we're making very good decisions that are targeted in the proper places here in Lexington to make a real difference. Dr. Talbert, I know this is ongoing, but could you tell me some more recommendations that your committee might have to address health disparities in Lexington? Well, it is ongoing, so I won't, I mean, I'll be very high level about it because our committee is still working on these things, Noah, but outside of looking at leveraging community health workers, which I think is very critical, that's one of the things. And I think the other piece that we learned was just transportation to an appointment. You know, you have to understand that people that uh, may be in a lower socioeconomic class don't really always get a lot of time from work, paid time off to go to an appointment. And if individuals don't have transportation to that appointment, that creates another barrier. So one of the other things that we were looking at, for instance, if you look at Lextran and you look at the bus routes, sometimes people can take two to three hours to get to an appointment that's at 10 o'clock in the morning. So they're spending half of their morning or half their day just getting to the appointment. And so these are deterrents for people and create barriers for people um, who may be trying to access the healthcare system. So one of the other things that we felt we would need to look at is just, do we need designated healthcare routes for people who have appointments so that they can get on a nonstop, whatever that may be, whether that's Lextran, that's through Wills, or Uber Health, you know, looking at some alternative options for people to reach doctor's appointments. The other thing that we believe that was very important um, is looking at food access and healthy selections. So where will the next Kroger's grow, go? I mean, not that anyone is considering that, but I do think that any push or influence that the mayor would have, we need to be looking at how we leverage her power and influence in the city and for the placement of supermarkets, for the placement of, and I'm gonna even say whole food places. I know that they are probably in some of the, the zip codes that uh, have higher socioeconomic classes or statuses, but I think that we have to look at how we can partner with places like, and I keep saying Kroger's, it doesn't have to be that, but other, because you know, I think the other thing is focusing on black owned businesses 
because we have businesses and black owned businesses that are out there and into the food business. And so how do you leverage the work and the presence of those individuals in the communities so that they have better presence, uh, visibility, but they're also part of the solution to help with some of the food deserts. So we think that food deserts, green space and sidewalks for activity, uh, transportation to and from healthcare appointments because that's critical and the um, community health workers are going to be very critical in our go forward plan and we don't have all the specifics outlined around how each of these entities will be laid out but we think that those are critical areas for us to look at. Dr. Talbert, thank you so much for joining us today to discuss the issues of health disparities in Lexington. Thank you to Dr. Williams as well for her comments that were contributed to this episode. Thank you to our writer for the week, Alex Brinkhurst. Join us next week for another episode of Campus Voices. I'm Noel Oldham, and you're listening to WRFL Lexington.